0: Today, we are in week 23 of a series on the book of Genesis. And so we're going to be in Genesis 23 together. Genesis 23. If you're new to Bible reading, it's really easy to find. Genesis is the first book of your Bible. Flip 23 chapters and you found it, all right? Genesis chapter 23. <clears throat> so we're all going to die. How's that for an intro, right? Like, ha. <laughs> Thanks for that terrible reminder, James, but listen, in all seriousness, we might as well talk about it because it's coming for all of us. Uh, Last time I checked, the death rate was still at 100%, one out of every one people die, and so we're all going to die, and the worst part is we have no idea when that day is coming. And here's what I wonder, and, and be really honest with yourself, okay? I wonder what goes on inside of you when you really stop to think about that. When you consider the fact that there is coming a day in the future, unbeknownst to you, when life as you know it will be over. Listen, I suspect that there are some of us in the room today who do our very best to just ignore it, uh, especially if you're young, you know, and you still think you're invincible. I'll never forget years ago, I was speaking at a youth detention center and there were just a lot of teenagers in the room who had made some unfortunate life decision, decisions. And as I was speaking, I made this point how we're all going to die one day. And one of the girls in the room shouted out, not me. <laughs> and I would bet that some of you can identify with her refusal to accept the reality of death, right? Like anytime death comes up, you just shrug it off and act like it's not applicable to you. I would also bet that there are probably some of us in the room today who get a little panicky when we think about death. Uh, Even right now, your heart rate is elevated and your palms are a little sweaty and you're annoyed that I brought it up. James, you're a jerk. Why are you doing this to me? Because anytime anyone talks about death, fear rises up in you. And if that's you, you're not alone. Uh, Fear of death is one of the most common fears in our world today. But then I would bet there are some strange people in the room. Uh, Some of you that when death is brought up, death is mentioned, this great calm and peace overtakes you, this unsatisfied longing rises up in you, and as weird as it sounds, you even get a little excited. Listen, if that's you today, what you feel proves the point of today's passage, and the point of the passage is this, that people of faith have hope beyond the grave, amen? That people of faith have hope beyond the grave. And here's what I mean. As people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, uh, people who've been adopted by God into his family as loved sons and daughters, we have no reason to ignore death, no reason to fear death, but every reason to hope in spite of death. Why? Well, the answer is simple, because of what the gospel or the good news of Jesus tells us. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he wrapped himself in flesh and he came to live among us. And he lived a life that none of us can live, a life of sinless perfection. At the end of that life, he went to a cross and died a death in our place for our sins so that people like you and me could be loved, forgiven, accepted by God. Three days later, Jesus Christ came bursting forth out of the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell forever forever. Forty days later, he ascended back to heaven where he is presently seated at the right hand of God in his resurrected body, ruling and reigning over all things, and one day he's coming back. And listen, on that day, all that we hate about this world will be no more, and for the rest of eternity, we'll be with King Jesus experiencing life in the way it was meant to be. Amen? Listen, as people of faith, we have hope beyond the grave. And what we learn from Genesis 23 is simply this. That our future hope has present implications for how we respond to and prepare for the grave here and now. And if that's confusing to you in any way, don't worry. It should make sense as we work our way through the text. So let's dive in. All right. Genesis 23. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So what we see in these first two verses is Abraham's wife of over a hundred years. Can you imagine that? Being married to the same person for a hundred years. It's pretty impressive, right? Like, dude, you should write a book on marriage and sell it to the rest of us. We'd love to read it. But, But Sarah, she dies at 127 years old. And she dies in the land of Canaan, which is really, really important to the story. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But we know from uh, passages like Isaiah fifty-one two and Hebrews eleven eleven that Sarah died as a woman of faith, as a woman fully confident in the character and the promises of God. Which lets us know that as soon as she died, she was with God. Right? As Christians, this is what we believe happens after death. Right? That we don't cease to exist, that we don't go into a place of purgatory, that our souls don't simply go to sleep. But in the blink of an eye, we are instantaneously ushered into the very presence of God. And the reason we believe that is because it's what we see in the scriptures. I'll give you just a few examples, okay? Uh, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he's crucified between two thieves. One thief is condemning him; the other thief is crying out for mercy. And Jesus says to the one crying out for mercy, "Today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow. Not a few weeks from now. Not after your sin has kind of been purged and burned up for a season. Today you'll be with me in paradise." Uh, jump into the book of Philippians. The apostle Paul says, and we just sang about this in that first song earlier. He says in Philippians one twenty one that to live is Christ and to die is game. But as long as I'm alive here on the, the earth, uh, there's blood pumping through my, my, my veins, breath in my lungs, life for me is going to be all about Jesus. But if I die, it's going to be even better because I'm going to go home and I'm going to be with him. Listen, that same Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and you've probably heard this if you've ever been to a funeral, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know it, right? So here's what that means. In Genesis chapter 23, Sarah was present with the Lord. Yet even still, don't miss this, yet even still, Abraham goes in and he mourns for her. Okay, these are the first tears that we see shed in the Bible. As Abraham is grieving the loss of his wife. And what his grief tells us about the grave is simply this. Implication number one, that beside the grave we grieve with hope. That beside the grave we grieve with hope. And let me just unpack what I mean, okay? When someone of faith dies, someone that you knew, someone that you loved, you need to grieve. You need to mourn. You need to get angry. You need to shed tears. You need to allow yourself to experience feelings of pain and sorrow. And I'll give you two reasons why, okay? Number one, grief reminds us that death is an enemy, Grief reminds us that death is an enemy. The reason death hurts so bad is because it was never meant to be a part of life in the first place. This is why when people die, we all have this sense of this isn't right. Like things aren't supposed to be this way. And we all feel right when we feel that way. I mean, we talked about this early on in the series when we covered creation and the fall. But in the beginning, when God created the world, he did so perfectly Everything was functioning exactly how God designed it to function. Death was nowhere in the picture. That is until mankind decided to rebel against him. The first two people he created decided, we don't want to bear God's image, which is all our purpose in life. We'd rather be our own gods. And so they do the one thing God asked them not to do, and as a result of their open rebellion, all of creation came under a curse. Part of that curse included death. And so it's really, really important to understand today, God didn't introduce death into his perfect creation. We as sinful people invited it in. We literally embraced our enemy, an enemy that takes away the very life God gives. And so when I say that you need to grieve, here's what I mean. Getting angry at death, getting frustrated with death, shedding tears because of death, it's almost like you're pushing death away and remembering its true identity. Death is an enemy, and praise God that one day through Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, death will be defeated once and for all. Amen? The second reason we grieve is this. We grieve because it's the only way to receive the healing and comfort you need when someone dies. It's the only way to receive the comfort and healing you need when someone dies. Okay, think about it like this. When you express grief... It's almost as if you are opening the door of your life to the help of both God and people. Both of which you need, by the way. Okay, as human beings, we were never meant to or designed to survive pain and sorrow on our own. And so again, we need God and we need people to help us through. If you are that person trying to survive on your own, uh, you've buried all your emotions and you're trying to be strong or you're faking it and you're pretending like everything's okay when it's not. What you've actually done is you have shut uh, the door of your life to the help that you need. And I just want to say to you, as long as that door remains shut, your heart will never truly heal from the pain you've experienced. Okay, we grieve to heal. We all need the help that God and people offer. If you're still not convinced, let me offer this. Even Jesus grieved. Even Jesus grieved. If you go to John chapter 11, you find this incredible story about one of his friends dying. This was a guy named Lazarus. And so Jesus goes to Bethany, his hometown, and we find Jesus standing outside of his tomb, literally weeping, grieving the loss of his friend. And I just want to say to you today, if Jesus needed to grieve, you need to grieve. But here's the catch. When you grieve, grieve with hope. When someone of faith dies, you don't just grieve, you grieve with hope, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the apostle Paul talks about this. He was writing to a church that was somewhat confused about the end times, uh, somewhat confused about what happens after people die. And so Paul says in that verse, I don't want you to be uninformed because I don't want you grieving like people who have no hope. And his point was simply this, that as believers in Christ, we don't grieve like the rest of the world. When we lose other believers in Jesus Christ, we don't grieve as if those people are lost forever because they're not. And in fact, I would tell you that as Christians, we don't really lose other Christians anyway. We just let them go for a little while. I mean, to imply that something is lost means that you have no idea where it is. (laughs) For example, this past week, I lost my phone. Uh, I was trying to get out the door to go to work one morning. Couldn't find my phone anywhere And so I'm pretty sure I had to ask everybody in my house, including Jesus, for forgiveness because I was losing my mind. You know what that's like, right? Listen, as Christians, we don't lose people like that. When other believers in Jesus Christ pass away, look, we know exactly where they are. We know who they're with. We know what they're experiencing. And we know that one day we're going to see them again, never again to be separated. And so when we grieve, listen, when we grieve, we grieve with hope. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Moses the author of Genesis continues and he says and Abraham rose up from before his dead and he said to the Hittites I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight the Hittites answered Abraham hear us my lord you are a prince of God among us bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it for me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered, Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So let's stop there and talk. A lot going on in this passage, but it's fairly simple, so let me help us see it, okay? What's happening here in these verses is that Abraham, yet again, is exercising incredible faith. And what is faith? Well, we've learned throughout the series that faith is simply confidence that God is who he says he is and will do everything he's promised to do. Faith is confidence that God is who he says he is and will do everything he's promised to do. Well, one of the things God promised Abraham he would do back in Genesis twelve seven was give his descendants land to live in. And this promised land was the land of Canaan where Sarah just died. But because the land didn't belong to him and his descendants just yet, Abraham ran into a little problem. Uh, It simply meant that he had no place to bury his wife. So what typically happened in a scenario like that was this. The family would pack up the dead body, and as quickly as possible, they would go back to their homeland, and they would bury their dead there. But what I love about our boy Abraham is he wasn't going to do that. Like God called him to leave everything behind, his country, his family, his citizenship, and there was no going back for him. And he had no idea how God would do it or when God would do it, but he was so confident in God's promise to give his descendants this land that he wanted his wife's body to be there when they got there. And so he goes to this people group called the Hittites. Uh, They were the dominant people group in Canaan at this time. And he humbles himself before him. I mean, you can see it in the text, right? He's bowing down and rising up and bowing down and rising up. And he just confesses, guys, I'm a stranger here. I'm an alien. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. None of this belongs to me. I'm not entitled to anything. But I just want to ask you, would you be gracious to me and give me property to bury my dead? Now, their response is very interesting. They reply back and say, oh, no, you're a a prince of God among us. you know what? You can bury your wife anywhere you want to bury. Like none of our tombs is off limits to you. Which seems to apply that they had this great respect for Abraham and his faith and his God. But what happens next in the story lets us know that their respect wasn't entirely sincere. Okay? Instead of agreeing to bury his wife in one of their tombs, Abraham asks to buy a cave in a place called, called Machpelah from this guy named Ephraim. He was the owner. Because remember, for Abraham, this was about faith. His goal wasn't only to get Sarah's body somewhere, but to get her body to a place that would demonstrate his faith in God's promises. And so his hope was to get a stake in the land, okay, to purchase a piece of property that would prove that he actually believed God. This is home now. And so Ephraim, he's in the crowd listening to this whole thing go down. You know, here's his name. Oh, this dude's talking about me. And uh, he says to Abraham, you know what, bro? I'm not too interested in selling my cave to you, but I am very interested in selling my cave and the field that the cave is in to you. So here's a dude looking for any way he can to make money. If you're a business person in the room, the Ephrains are the guys you want on your team, right? Like you're thinking, I love this guy. Like, could he put his resume in? I'd love to have him on my team, right? I mean, he's a salesman through and through. Yet surprisingly, uh, Abraham, he he, instead of counter-offering just says back to the guy, let's do it. I'll buy your field. I'll, I'll buy your cave. No big deal. And Ephraim responds again and he says, great, that'll be 400 shekels of silver. I know that 400 shekels of silver means absolutely nothing to you. So just know that was a lot of money for what Abraham was getting. And what everyone would have expected him to do in this moment, including Ephraim, was to say back, dude, you have lost your mind. Like, no way I'm paying that. That's way too much. And then he would go on to haggle about the price. But he doesn't. You know, it's like he just gets out the checkbook and goes, okay. And he just quietly pays him. And what we learn from Abraham's purchase is this. Here's implication number two. That because of the grave, we invest in hope. That because of the grave, we invest in hope. You see, I believe that Abraham probably understood something at this point in his life that we at times can easily forget as very impatient, short-sighted people. And hear me, I'm not just preaching that at you. I'm raising my hand with you, okay? Like, we're all in that together. But here's what Abraham remembered. That God will do more for us in death than he ever did in life. That God will do more for us in death than he ever did in life. I mean, think about this with me. Abraham had all these incredible promises from God, right? Promises of descendants. Promises of a great name. Promises of land. Promises that the entire earth would be influenced because of him. Yet, none of that has happened at this point, and his own family members are starting to die. And so I think Abraham's just realizing in this moment, you know what? I'm not going to see any of that during my lifetime. Um, God is going to wait to do all that until after I'm dead and gone. And so what does Abraham do? He invests. He pulls out his checkbook and he throws down a sizable chunk of money to invest in the future hope and the future promises God has given him. And my friends, hear me today. This is exactly what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ to invest in future hope. Because like Abraham, and hopefully you agree with this, we've been given some incredible promises from God, haven't we? Promises that one day in the future, healing is gonna come. That one day in the future, we're finally gonna be delivered from sin and spiritual bondage of every type. Promises that there's coming a day when we're gonna receive a brand new resurrected body that will never suffer, never die, never feel pain. Promises that One day in the future, we're going to see Jesus face to face, and we're going to live with him forever on a new renovated earth in his eternal kingdom. And listen, because we know that's the future that awaits us, we invest in that future hope right now. And we do it for a couple of reasons. If you take a notes, I would encourage you to write these down. They will not be on the screen, so just do your best to keep up. All right, reason number one, we invest in hope because we know the grave is coming for us. Uh, We invest in hope because we know the grave is coming for us. Here's the reality, and you already know this because you're all smart people. But you and I, we only get one shot at this thing called life. One shot. And once our one shot is over, it is over. There are no redos. There are no second attempts. And anything you had while you are here is staying here. Okay, I've said this many times before uh, in preaching to you. But none of us have the luxury of hooking up the U-Haul to the hearse after our funeral and dragging all of our stuff with us into the next life, right? And listen, here's what I would say. Because you can't bring it with us, or bring it with you, excuse me, what you should do is send it on ahead. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of wasting all that God has given you, you know, your time, your money, your resources, your possessions, your influence, instead of wasting all that on only building up your earthly kingdom, leverage it to build up his eternal kingdom right? do what jesus taught in matthew chapter 6 and instead of storing up all your treasure here on the earth where bugs eat things and rust destroys things and thieves steal things store up your treasure in heaven and why would i tell you that today well it's simple because this world's not your home And the grave that awaits you is proof of that. And because you have no idea when the grave is coming for you, the time to invest in hope is now, right now, not a year from now or five years from now or after you've had your fun or gotten some things out of your system. No, the time to invest in future hope is right now. And because I don't want to miss anybody in the room, let me just break it down. Middle schoolers, invest now. High schoolers in the room, invest right now. College students, young adults, don't waste your life, invest now. Young parents, I know life is crazy and you're tired all the time and and the budget's tight, but invest right now. Middle-aged adults, senior adults, invest in the future hope God has given you now. Regardless of how much time you think you have or you don't have left, my plea with you today is this. Do not waste your life investing in things that do not matter. Invest in the hope God has given you and do it now. That leads me right into point number two. The second reason we invest is because we know the grave is coming for others. Reason number one, we do it because we know the grave is coming for us. Reason number two, we do it because we know the grave is coming for others. Again, you all know this, but I'm going to say it anyway to say that I did, okay? This world is filled with people who desperately need the hope we're talking about today. Right? I mean, right now on planet Earth, literally billions of people are living life without Jesus. And if they die without him, they spend eternity apart from him and they never experience the hope he freely offers. And I am convinced because of what I see in the scriptures that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ have to do something about that. And the way that we do something about it is by investing in hope. Right? We give away our time, our talent, our money, our resources, our influence. Why? Not because we feel guilty or that's just because what like good Christians do, you know. No, we do it so that people far from God can experience the hope we've been given in Jesus Christ. And a prime example of what this looks like is what we're getting ready to do this month with Bless Month. I mean, this is very timely. But this month, we are asking our church to do two things. Number one, to give up a Saturday and to serve suffering people. And number two, to collectively give $228,000 to ministry happening outside of our walls. Why are we doing that? Number one, because we know that there are people in this community right now who are hungry, who are homeless, who don't have enough to provide for their kids. Many of them don't know Jesus, and we want to invest in their hope. We know that there are people in countries where we are currently working who don't have access to clean water. Their kids are dying every day from preventable illnesses like malaria and diarrhea. The poverty that they are living in could literally be described as hell on earth. And listen to me, some of them have never heard the name of Jesus, and we want to invest in their hope. We also know, that in the U.S. right now, in our country where we live, that 80% of all churches are plateaued or declining. 80%. 80% are reaching nobody. Only 16% are growing, and that includes transfer growth. You know, I'm going to leave my church and go to that other church because I like that church better than mine. Listen to this. Only 4% of churches are reproducing and starting new churches. Can you imagine what would happen if only 4% of couples in the U.S. reproduced and had kids? Uh, This nation would go away quickly. And that's what's happening to our church right now in this nation. In addition, over 3,500 churches in the U.S. are closing their doors every single year. And our population is projected to grow by 80 million people in the next 30 years. Do you know what that tells us? (laughs) Contrary to what you might think, there are not nearly enough gospel-centered, mission-minded churches that are taking seriously preaching Jesus to people right where we live. There's not. And we want to do something about that. We want to invest in the hope of people in this nation by planting new churches in dark places where the gospel is desperately, desperately needed. But hear me, this is the call on all of our lives every single day. Like what we cannot afford to do as followers of Christ is just to sit back and do nothing while we know that all these needs exist right around us. But instead, we have to do everything in our power to point people on the way to their graves to the only one who can save them from it. Amen? Because of the grave, we invest in hope. We invest in hope. There's one final thing I want to show you from the passage. Go back to it with me, if you will, verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, it was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. And it was made over before all who went in at the gate of a city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. So what we see in these final few verses is Abraham finally taking possession of the field and the cave he purchased, and he buries his wife. But what's so fascinating is that when you keep reading the book of Genesis, you start to learn Sarah wasn't the only one buried there. Okay, we'll see this clearly when we get to Genesis 49, uh, but in this same cave, all three of the Jewish patriarchs were buried along with their wives. Uh, Abraham was buried there eventually with Sarah after he died. We'll see that in a couple chapters from now. His son, Isaac, was buried there with his wife, Rebecca, after they died. His grandson, Jacob, was buried there with his wife, Leah, after they died. You ever heard people say, like talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They were the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. And so what that tells us is simply this, and I love it, that Abraham's faith didn't go to the grave with him. (laughs) Don't you love that? But each generation after him went to their graves with the same hope he possessed, that one day God would follow through on all of his promises, and in the land that they were buried, the descendants of Abraham would come, and they would invade that land, and it would become home. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe when the descendants of Abraham finally heard that story centuries later, that it gave them incredible hope. I mean, come on, do you remember who the book of Genesis was written to? If not, don't worry. I'm about to tell you. So you can just like, oh yeah, absolutely. I remember. You can just fake it if you want. But the book of Genesis was written by Moses to the descendants of Abraham after they were freed from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. After they were freed, God's plan was to bring them into the land of promise, which that journey should have taken about a year. But because of their stubbornness and their disobedience, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Then, listen, then an entire generation of people die off, and I have to believe that the generation that was next in line, you know, the first that was going to enter the promised land, they probably needed some hope. They're wondering, is that going to happen to us, or is God finally going to take us in? And so, I just imagine Moses calling all those people together, and he goes, hey, listen, uh, I want to tell you about a cave. There's this cave in the land where God is leading us. And then Moses went on to share the details of Genesis 23, how hundreds of years earlier, after Sarah died, Abraham, the father of the nation, bought this cave to bury his wife. And he bought it in faith because he believed with all of his heart that one day his descendants would enter this land and it would be home. And I just have to imagine that as Moses is telling this story, all these Jewish people are listening, and Abraham's faith gave them hope for their future. Listen, here's what I want us to take from all that. Final point, and then we'll be done. Before the grave, we build a legacy of hope. Before the grave. What's the third implication? This is it. Before the grave, we build a legacy of hope. So in other words, as people of faith, it is our responsibility to pass down hope to succeeding generations, to make sure that they know about God's character, they know about God's promises, so that they know what awaits them in the future. Now, here's the really hard part. What they do with that hope is entirely up to them. And that's scary, (laughs) and at times it can be really frustrating, can't it? And you know this, if you're a parent in the room or a grandparent in the room who's tried to hand down hope to a kid or a grandkid after you, and they go, "Um, I don't want that. They have to decide what to do with it, but it's up to you to make sure that it's actually handed down, that they know the hope that God offers and how to live in light of it. And can I tell you the best way to pass hope down? It's really simple. The best way to pass hope down is by living in light of hope yourself. By getting out of bed every day, setting your sights on the finish line of life, and then banking all of life on the character and the promises of God. That's what I love about Abraham. That's all he did in life. That's all he did. Yes, he did some dumb, sinful things at times, which we all do, so let's not be too hard on the guy, right? But the reason he is celebrated in the scriptures as a man of incredible faith is because he was. He lived his life in light of the hope God gave him. You see it all throughout the Bible. I'll give you one text from the New Testament, Hebrews 11, 9 uh, 9 through 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Look at this next part. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Here's what the writer's telling us. That because of his faith, Abraham left everything behind. Like when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey dude, uh, leave behind your family and your country and your citizenship and set out for a land that I'm going to give you because I'm going to bless you and make your name great and make you a father of a great nation and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham said, Yes God, I am in. And he packed up his stuff, had no idea where he was going. And he shows up in a foreign land as a stranger, and God says, whoa, 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 stop, this is it. And at 75 years old, he sets up some tents, and that's where he lives out the rest of his life with his family. Can you imagine that? At 75 years old, your life just becomes a big camping trip. This is what Abraham did. Why? Because of the hope God gave him. He was a man whose future hope impacted his present life. And here's my question as we close. Is the same true for you today? Is the same true for you today? Is your future hope impacting your present life? Look, are all the promises God's given you, are those promises changing the way you invest Changing the way that you interact with the next generation. Changing the way you think about death. The way you grieve when other people around you die. Or are you the person in the room that's just kind of living like this life is all you've got? Listen, I just want to invite us today, if you are the latter person, to simply ask God to change that about you. To change your perspective. To change your heart. To do a supernatural work in you that would allow you with the help of the Holy Spirit to see all of life differently so that you can begin to live in light of the hope God has given you. So can we do that right now? Just all over the room. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. <clears throat> and as they come, I would just invite you begin to pray. Begin to pray. And just pray however the spirit of God leads you. Maybe you're that person in the room today who is spending life as if this life again is the only one you've got. The way that you're living, the way that you're investing, the way that you're interacting with the people around you, like it's really at the end of the day all about you your comfort, your enjoyment, your pleasure, what you're not doing is remembering that God has a future for you beyond the grave that needs to impact life now. Ask God to change that. Maybe you're someone who's holding on tightly to all the things that God has given you. And you're using those things in very selfish and self-seeking ways, not investing in God's church, not investing in God's kingdom. Right now in this moment, why don't you just pray and just ask the Lord, God, open my hands, open my heart, help me to invest in hope. Or maybe there's some of you in the room today who have experienced loss and you still haven't grieved. And you need to grieve. Why don't you just ask God, even in this moment, God, just take away fears and take away insecurities and rip down these walls that exist in my heart and help me. Help me to express this emotion that I know needs to get out of me. You just ask for his help. Again, however the Lord's leading you, just pray. Pray. Lift your heart up to him. and as as many of you are praying and please keep doing business with the Lord whatever you're praying about right now you can do that listen I would also suspect that there are probably people in this room who are walking through life every day without hope because you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and he's the only one that can give hope God gave up the life of his son to give you hope And if you're floating through life right now on your own, apart from God, and you know today that what you need is Jesus. And you need the hope that Jesus gives. I want to help you experience that today, but let me say this first, okay? Um, Because I think this is important. I want you to know that Jesus is more than a get out of hell free card, okay? Uh, The invitation is not just to say a prayer so that you don't have to go to hell. The invitation is to hand your life over to the God of the universe who created you. To follow Jesus now. To experience hope now. That's what Jesus calls us to, as a relationship now. And so if you know, man, that's what I need now. The good news is you can have that now, and then at the end of your life, you get to go be with Jesus. That's just the icing on the cake. And so if you need him, just in prayer, why don't you just say something like this to God? Just tell him, God, I need you to save me today. I'm handing my life to you. I'm tired of doing life on my own apart from you. I need Jesus. And I believe that he's the Savior of the world the one who died to save me from my sins, the one who rose from the dead so that I can have hope for my future. And so God, forgive me today. Take hold of my life today. I say yes to following Jesus.